Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Do you believe in God? I believe in someone, something. There's got to be something out there, up there. Maybe it's God. Maybe. Okay, then how do I get to God? There are many roads. Well, that's one viewpoint. All paths lead to God. That's narrow. Seems a bit arrogant. The only way? God? Is that you? How will I find you? Will I know the way? Two Americans, one from the state of Texas, the other from Georgia, are having a friendly chat. The man from Texas asked the man from Georgia, so how big is your home place? The Georgian answered, oh, I'd say I own about 100 acres or so. How about you? The Texan said, well, son, let me explain it to you this way. If you got in my car and drove from sunup to sundown, you still wouldn't reach the end of my property. The Georgian grinned, and he said, yeah. He says, I know what you mean. I used to have a useless car like that, too. (laughs) You know, sometimes people make claims that we just have a hard time believing or accepting. And one of those claims made by Christians that evokes a lot of negative emotion, at least in some people, is that Jesus is the only way to God. Now, some Christians have a smug, arrogant, and self-righteous attitude when they talk about Jesus being the only way. They seem to enjoy having people tell them where to go and how to get there. However, I think I speak for most Christians when I say that we don't communicate that Jesus is the only way to God because we enjoy having people lash out at us with unmitigated fury and call us arrogant and narrow-minded and self-righteous and bigoted. Now, the reason that we make that claim is because this is what Jesus said about himself. In fact, Jesus made a number of outrageous claims, at least if you look at it from a human point of view. One day he was talking to a woman by the side of a well, and he pointed to the water that she had just drawn from that well, And he said, everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Another time he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. But perhaps the most controversial statement that Jesus ever made is when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father 
except through me. Now, these are pretty outrageous claims, at least humanly speaking. I mean, if I were to make such claims about myself in a service like this or on national TV, you would all conclude that I'm just a few French fries short of a happy meal. But Jesus wasn't kidding. He was dead serious. He didn't say he was a way or a truth. He said he was the way, the truth, the source of life itself. On top of that, Jesus' disciples, who knew him best, they affirmed his claims. They essentially said, look, we have heard his profound teaching. We have witnessed the miracles that he performed. We saw his crucifixion, and we witnessed his resurrection. And we're telling you he's the real deal. Referring to Jesus, the apostle Peter said this, salvation or the way to God, is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The Apostle Paul wrote, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So you see, when we Christians say that Jesus is the only way, we're not trying to put ourselves on a pedestal or suggest that we're better than anyone else. We're just simply stating what Jesus claimed to be. And yet, in spite of all of this, many people react negatively to the Christian faith because of it. They resist embracing the Christian faith because they see Christianity as being exclusive, as being intolerant, as being narrow-minded. Well, let's look at those a little more closely. To begin with, people see Christianity as being exclusive. Now, Dr. Rabbi Zacharias and Lee Strobel, both of whom I want to thank for their insights on this particular subject, they point out that Christianity is not the only religion that is exclusive. For example, Muhammad taught that there is only one true God and his name is Allah. The worship of any other God is eternal damnation in hell. Now that's pretty exclusive, wouldn't you say? Buddhism, on the other hand, rejects the notion of a personal God, was birthed by Gautama Buddha, who staunchly rejected two fundamental assertions of Hinduism. Namely, the ultimate authority of their, their holy scriptures and the caste system. Again, some pretty exclusive convictions. Hinduism itself is absolutely uncompromising on the authority of their scriptures, the Vedas, and reincarnation and the law of karma. Sikhism was born out of a negative reaction to Buddhism and Hinduism. And then there are the atheists who reject the viewpoints of those who believe in God. Even Baha'ism, which claims to be a cosmic embrace of all religions, excludes those who believe that there's only one way to God. All that to say Christianity is not the only religion that claims exclusivity and therefore should not be rejected on this basis alone. 
A second reason people struggle embracing the Christian faith is because they perceive it to be intolerant. Many people believe that making exclusive claims like your religion is the truth and other people's religion is false leads to intolerance at best and actually leads to outright conflict, violence, and even war at worst. They believe that there will be no peace on earth as long as religious leaders make exclusive claims like their religion is the only way to God. Now, in Canada, we value peace. And in order for different cultures and faiths to coexist peacefully, we believe there must be tolerance of each other's beliefs. Now, I have no problem with that. I'm a firm believer that that we should be tolerant of those with whom we disagree. In fact, I think it's important that we continue to work to create a world where there is greater religious freedom, where people can talk openly about their faith without fear of negative reprisal, where people can dialogue freely with those of different religious convictions and learn from each other and freely choose their own faith. Religious freedom and tolerance is a very good thing. However, it is equally important to point out that tolerance should not be confused with truthfulness. You see, there are those who would argue that since truth tends to be tends to divide people tends to promote intolerance no one view should be seen as more true than another now that sounds good that sounds really politically correct you have your truth and i have my truth you know we're all good and yet this violates our rationality I mean, it's one thing for all religions to be equally tolerated. It's quite another for all religions to be seen as equally true. For example, if I believe the earth is round and you believe the earth is flat, I'll tolerate you and your right to believe that. But don't call me intolerant because I state that I believe the world is round and won't in the same breath state that your viewpoint is equally valid to mine because the truth is the evidence overwhelmingly supports my belief that the earth is round. If you sincerely believe that there is no God and your neighbor sincerely believes that there is a God, then based on this way of thinking that we see emerging today, God does and God does not exist at the same time, which just doesn't make any sense at all. Folks, truth is what's real, the way things really are. Truth exists outside of our subjective feelings and thoughts. Truth is never subjectively created. It is merely discovered. You know, my wife Gwen likes it when the temperature outside is hot. Not, not warm, but hot. She has not been a happy camper this winter. I, on the other hand, like things cool. N- not minus 40 cool, but cool. 
And so we have interesting times setting an appropriate temperature in our home or when we're traveling together. If the temperature in our home is 18 degrees Celsius, for example, I'm feeling good. I mean, that's tanning weather for me. You know, I'm feeling real comfortable. On the other hand, if, it's minus, if, it's, if, if the temperature is 18 degrees Celsius in our home, Gwen has her winter coat on, her ski pants on. She's covering herself with a blanket and the whole bit and complains a lot about how cold it is in the house, I might add. So it's never, ever 18 degrees in our home. It's more like 28 degrees in our home. And that means that she's loving it, and I'm turning on fans and dying. But here is my point. If it's 28 degrees Celsius in our home, our perception of reality between me and Gwen is different. Gwen's truth is she's warm and comfortable. My truth is I'm hot, sweaty, and miserable. But regardless of our personal, relative perceptions of reality or truth, the objective truth is it's 28 degrees in our home. Apologist Mark Middleberg says, truth is what is, whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not, whether we can prove it or not whether we have different perceptions or belief about it or not. He says, you may choose, for example, to believe that there are no such things as trucks. But if you step in the pathway of an uncommon truck that you don't believe exists, you're about to find out in a very real way that it in fact does exist. Now, you know, we smile and chuckle at that. It makes sense to us, of course, until we come to values and morals and spiritual matters. When it comes to spiritual matters, we, we somehow think that the nature of truth changes. We begin to think that it's okay to believe that God can exist for you, but not for me. Because you have your truth and I have my truth. But again, truth is truth. Either God exists or he doesn't. Two opposing viewpoints cannot both be right. Truth by its very nature is exclusive. It's intolerant, you see, of error. It's intolerant of the opposite. Dr. R.C. Spruill, he tells of a conversation that he had with a Baha'i priest. The priest told Spruill that all religions are equally valid. Now, Spruill, of course, is well-versed in comparative religions, and so he just pointed out some significant differences between the major world religions, and the priest responded. He didn't know anything about Islam or Judaism or the rest of the world religions, but he did know that they were all the same. Spruill was totally baffled by the priest's rationale. But you see, this viewpoint is gaining momentum in our day. For the sake of tolerance, for the sake of our sense of peace, truth is being ignored. It's being thrown out the window. It's being seen as irrelevant, as unimportant. 
Proponents of this view would acknowledge that there are differences between various world religions, but if you strip them down, the religious, um, uh, the world religions, if you strip them down to their essentials, all religions fundamentally teach the same things, they say. So it doesn't really matter which religion you follow as long as you are sincere. Now to help the us to imagine this, they say, picture a mountain with God at the peak and man down at the base of the mountain. The story of religion is the account of man's effort to move from the base of the mountain to the peak of the mountain to be with God. The mountain has many pathways that reach the top. Some are more direct than others, but they ultimately arrive at the same place. Now, I will concede that there are aspects of truth in virtually all major religions and that there are some similarities shared by uh, many of the world's religions. But at the same time, there are significant differences between world religions and not just at the surface level. No. There's significant differences at the core belief level. Lee Strobel points out, for example, that Buddhism denies the existence of a personal God, whereas Christianity affirms the existence of a personal God. Some Hindus do not believe in a personal God, but in Brahman, an impersonal absolute reality which permeates all things. In other words, everything is God, and God is everything. Totally different concept of God than what the Christian holds in terms of the perspective of a personal God. Other Hindus believe that there are millions of gods which are manifestations of the Brahma. So even on something as fundamental as the nature of God, the major world religions have major disagreement. According to Islam, each of us will die once and face judgment by Allah. Depending on Allah's judgment, we will spend eternity either in paradise or in hell. In contrast, many Hindus claim that we will live and have already lived many lives on earth, and depending on how we have lived, that each of us will be reincarnated into a different form following our death. Again, significant differences in this area. The most core belief of the Christian faith is that Jesus is God the Son, that he died for our sins, that he rose again. Islam, on the other hand, denies the deity, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, these are the core beliefs of the major world religions and they can't all be true because they contradict each other. Which leaves us with only one conclusion. All religions should be tolerated, but not all religions are the same. And if all religions are not the same, not all religions are equally true. If Christ claims to be the only way to God and Muhammad says, uh-uh, there's another way. You can't have it both ways. 
Both can't be right. Either one is right, the other is wrong, or both are wrong. There's a third and a related reason that people struggle embracing the Christian faith, and that is because they perceive it to be narrow-minded. Jesus claimed to be the only way to God, and in Matthew chapter 7, he likened the process of putting our trust in him to that of entering a narrow gate. He said, the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. In our culture, people really react to the idea of having to follow just one way, to the idea of entering through just one gate. The mindset among many is that if something is narrow, it must be either wrong or totally whacked out. And yet, do we really believe that? Suppose someone gives you a brand new car. Now, please, please don't wander off to fantasy land thinking about that too much, okay? All right, just stay with me. But suppose someone gives you a car that, you know, a lot of people would love to have. And the person who gifts you this car hands you a key. And he says, this key will not only get you into this car, but it will actually start the car. Only this key will do that. No other key will work on this car. Now that sounds really narrow, doesn't it? But would anyone in their right mind reject that car because there is only one way into it? And so you're driving your brand new car and soon your gas tank is empty. You may not like the fact that you have to put gas into that car because gas is expensive. And frankly, you'd much rather fill the tank with dirt, much cheaper. And yet, why is there not a person in this place who would do that? If your child had a serious life-threatening illness and the best doctors on the planet said that there's only one way for your child to get better and it's through this one particular treatment, would you argue with them about that just being too easy or too narrow? Of course you wouldn't. You see, narrow can be a good thing. Now the truth is, Christians know that Christianity is narrow. But they also know it's true. And it's not based on wishful thinking. No, it's based on the claims of Christ and he backed up his claims. No other leader of a major religion ever made the claims that Jesus made about himself. Buddha never claimed to be anything more than a man. Muhammad never claimed to be anything more than a prophet. Moses and Confucius were mere mortals. Jesus, on the other hand, claimed to be God. Again, in Mark chapter 14, verse 61, during his trial, the high priest flat out asked Jesus, he said, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus responded and said, I am. He claimed to be the Son of God. Now, of course, anyone can make such a claim, and down through history, there have been those who have made similar claims. But as I said, Jesus backed up his claim by embodying the very attributes of God. For one, he lived a sinless life, a perfect life. 
In John 8, 46, Jesus challenged his detractors. He said, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? But no accusation was made. In fact, Peter, who walked with Jesus for a number of years, knew him best, probably, of any of the disciples. He referred to Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, as the lamb without blemish or defect. Dr. Rabbi Zacharias says in the Muslim world today, the belief is held that all the prophets were sinless. And yet the shortcomings of two of the most renowned and respected prophets of Islam, Abraham and Moses, they're plainly stated, not only in our scriptures in the Old Testament, but they're also plainly stated in the Quran. In Surah 28, verse 15, Moses asked for forgiveness for slaying the Egyptian. In Surah 26, verse 82, Abraham asked for forgiveness on the day of judgment. In Surahs 47 and 48, Muhammad himself was told to ask for forgiveness for sin. Now, Muslims translate the word sin as fault. And yet, even if it is translated fault instead of sin, the fact that there is a fault that needs forgiving in Muhammad's life clearly indicates that Muhammad did not live a perfect life the way that Jesus did. Neither does Buddha measure up to the standard of personal purity that Jesus set. The very fact that Buddha endured rebirths implies a series of imperfect lives. You see, Jesus was no ordinary prophet. He was the sinless Son of God. Furthermore, Jesus authenticated who he was by performing miracles for all to see, including the greatest of skeptics of his day. And of course, Jesus rose from the dead, a historical event that, that was witnessed by hundreds of people. Buddha, Muhammad, Moses, and Confucius, they're all dead, but not Jesus. He's alive. You see, Jesus didn't just claim that he is the Son of God. Anybody could do that. He validated his claim with convincing evidence. No one spoke like Jesus. No one ever answered questions the way that he did. No one taught with such conviction and wisdom. No one transformed more lives from the inside out than Jesus down through history. And that is because Jesus is Lord and God as he claimed to be. And that's why the Apostle Peter said, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What's he saying? He's saying, this is true. We're witnesses of it all. This is reality. Jesus is alive. He can be trusted. And so, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, if he is truly God, the Son, then when he says he is the only way to God, he's not being arrogant. He's simply telling the truth. You see, the truth is, 
we're separated from God. Which explains why every religion is attempting in its own unique way. All of them are trying to connect with God. All of them are trying to find a way to God. All of them are trying to do something to earn the favor of God. If the Hindu wishes to become one with the ultimate reality, the Brahma, he will need to live a virtuous life, performing his religious duties. This will ensure that, he's being, that he will be reincarnated up through the various social classes until he finally achieves moksha, or the liberation of the soul from the wheel of karma. The Buddhist is called upon to follow the eightfold path. The Jew is called upon to keep the Ten Commandments and the laws of the Torah. While the Muslim believes the way to God is through the five pillars of faith, which are a series of disciplines and good works, and will hopefully, hopefully offset one's sins on the day of reckoning. Listen to what the Quran says about the final day of judgment. In the day of judgment, they whose balances shall be heavy with good works shall be happy. But they whose balances shall be light are those who shall lose their souls and shall remain forever in hell. That, my friends, is a graphic description of every religion, fundamentally, of every religion on this planet outside of Christianity. Heaven, nirvana, paradise is yours if you do enough good works, if you are good overall, if you pray enough, if you meditate enough, if you follow the eight-step path or the five-fold plan. But tell me, how does one ever know if you've done enough? You never know in this life. I mean, can you feel the despair of that? Can you feel the uncertainty of that? Can you, can you feel the fear surrounding that of never knowing where you stand with God, whether you've ever done enough? Christianity teaches the opposite. It says we can't reach God through our own efforts. Rather, God reaches out to us. And guess through whom? Through Jesus. The Bible teaches that we're all guilty of wrongdoing. And that in ourselves, we all fall short of the absolute holiness and perfection of God. And because God is a just God, He must judge wrongdoing. Our wrongdoing must be paid for. You see, that's really the issue that every religion is wrestling with. The issue is who's going to pay the penalty for our sin, for the wrongdoings that separate us from God. Because of His amazing love for us, Jesus voluntarily offered Himself as our substitute to pay the penalty that we owe because of our sin and our rebellion. He's the only religious leader to do this. In fact, and this is significant, of all the religious leaders, he's the only one qualified to do this. 
which is why he said, no man comes to the Father except through me. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace, by what God has done in Christ, that you are saved by faith. And this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. When you embrace Christ as your Savior, Lord, and friend, you become reunited with God forever, not because of anything that you have done, but because of what Christ did for you and me on the cross. Striving to be good, striving to do good, as important as that is, is not the way to heaven. It won't get you there. The way is not found in a religion. It is not found in a set of rules. It is found in a person, Jesus Christ himself, knowing him and living all out for him. Good works is something that you, uh, you, you do not to get to heaven, but because you know that in Christ Jesus, you're already on your way to heaven. Good works is something that grows out of your friendship with Jesus. John 1.12 says, Yet to all, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Notice it says, yet to all who received him. That sounds pretty inclusive, doesn't it? Everyone's invited to become a friend of Jesus. Everyone's invited to become part of the family of God but it just requires that you receive what he's giving you. It's like if I announce that there's going to be a party at my house and you're all invited. You're all welcome to the party. No one's excluded. There's just one condition that I have. Just one. I don't want you parachuting through one of the windows into my place, okay? I don't want you busting down my back door. No, please. Everyone come, but please, all I ask is that you would just come through the front door. May sound narrow, but just come through the front door. And you see, that's essentially the condition that Jesus lays out as well. He's saying, You're all invited, no one's excluded, but I'm the door. I'm the only way to God, the Father. It's found in me and through me. I'll close with this. In 1970, an event took place that captured the attention of the entire world. In fact, they say it was perhaps the only time in the history of the world up to that point in time when people in every nation stopped and prayed. In 1970, the news flashed around the world concerning three American astronauts in Apollo 13. 200,000 miles from planet Earth heading towards the moon. There was an explosion on the spaceship causing the directional guidance system to be knocked out. 
The spaceship was off course. It was headed out to darkest space without any hope of return. But that wasn't all. The explosion had also punctured the oxygen tanks, leaving the three astronauts with only four hours to live. As the minutes ticked by, Johnson's Space Center worked frantically, trying to figure out if there was any way that those men could be saved. With only 20 minutes left in their oxygen tanks, the Space Center radioed the crew, and they said, we have found a way, one possible way that you can be saved. They said, you're going to have to go through the door of the lunar lander, which they were going to use to go to the surface of the moon. And you're going to have to plug into its directional guidance system, and you're going to have to plug into its life support system and use its rockets to propel you around the moon and back to Earth. It's the only possible way for you to be saved. Now, you know, those three astronauts, having received that glorious, life-saving news, they still had a choice. They could have ignored the news from Johnson Space Center and tried to find their own way. They could have said, come on, guys, we don't need them. We're smart, we're intelligent, we can find our own way. Let's put on our thinking caps. Let's solve this ourselves. Let's find a way that works for us. But unfortunately for them, that's not what they did. They received that revelation from headquarters with gratitude. And they went through that one door. And they plugged into that new life support system. And they used the new power to propel them around the moon and back to earth. And miraculously, they were saved. You know, friends, the Bible says that as sinners, we are headed for a Christless eternity without hope. And yet Heaven's Command Center tells us that there is a way, a new life support system, a new guidance system, a new source of power in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the source of life itself. If you will trust me, if you will plug into me by faith, you will be saved. You know, you can study all the religions and philosophies that you want, but I'm here to tell you that there is only one hope. There is only one way. There is only one door for you to enter, and that is Jesus Christ. My question is, are you plugged into him by faith? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus was telling the truth when he said he's the way to God and to heaven. In John 3.36, he said it even more directly. 
He said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. I ask you, where do you really stand with Jesus? You know, another reason why people don't like this idea of one way, why they often refer to Christianity as being intolerant and exclusive and narrow-minded is because they want to go their own way. They want to do their own thing. They don't want to submit or surrender to the true God. They don't want anybody messing with their life. And I guess that's their choice. But if that's where your heart is at, I want to challenge you to reconsider. I want to give you an opportunity to put your trust in Jesus. I'm wondering how many of you would say, you know, Pastor, I'm not one of those who thinks I'm good enough to get to heaven on my own merits. Far from it. My life has been spinning out of control for some time now and is filled with regret. I feel so unworthy of God's forgiveness. Well, friend, you know, sin is serious business. Jesus died to set us free from it. Bible tells us that if we confess our sin, Jesus is faithful, he is just, and he will forgive us of our sins, and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll do what we can't do. But you must acknowledge your sin, confess it, and put your faith in Jesus. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in just a moment. Others of you may have been attending church faithfully for years. Perhaps you even prayed a prayer some time ago to put your faith in Jesus. But as the years have gone by, you realize that you didn't really count the cost. You saw it as an easy ticket to heaven, not beginning a life-altering friendship with Jesus Christ. And you'd have to admit you're kind of playing games. You're kind of, your faith is kind of limited to just coming to a service like this once a week. You're not really plugged into Jesus. And friends, when Jesus said he's the only way, if you're not really plugged into him, you're not plugged in. You need to understand that. This is serious business. If you're prepared to humble yourself, acknowledge your sin, and would like to begin a life-altering relationship with Jesus. I'm going to invite you to do something that takes courage. I'm going to invite you to slip out of your seat, make your way up here. As a visible act in the sight of God and the people gathered here of your faith commitment to Jesus Christ. Prayer partners, I'm going to ask you to come forward. Pastors who are in this service, I'm going to ask you to come forward. Just be prepared to encourage and to pray with those who do come. Would you please stand with me? It's going to take courage, folks, for you to do so. But Jesus said, 
Jesus made this comment. He said, he who is not willing to acknowledge me before men, I will not acknowledge before my Father in heaven. And so if you sense God's tugging at your heart, you come now just as you are. You come. And we're going to say a prayer together. And then I'm going to let you go and get on your merry way. But folks, if you're not plugged into him, and I'm speaking to Christians as well, or people who think you're a Christ follower, if you're not really plugged into him, if you're not really sold out for him, if you're not all in, challenge you to be all in. This is serious business. says that heaven erupts with joy when one person comes to faith in Jesus, when one sinner repents. Are you plugged into Jesus? praying this prayer right now. You can pray it in your heart. Jesus knows your heart. He knows your motivations. He sees the sincerity of your heart. He knows what you're thinking. Make this your prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me, for dying for my sins and my shortcomings. I confess I've been avoiding you. I've been accusing Christianity of being exclusive, intolerant, narrow-minded, just in order to hide from you, in order to ignore you. I acknowledge that you are God and that I'm not and that you, Jesus, are the way, the truth, and the life. I need a Savior, Lord. And so right now, by faith, I open the door of my life to you. I repent of my sin and I ask that you come into my life as my Savior and Lord and that you will make me all that you want me to be. Forgive me, Lord. Cleanse me. Make your robe of righteousness. And just put it on me, Lord. I have counted the cost, and I'm all in. No turning back. And I pray that you will do my day with me each and every day, and that you will live your life through me. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen prayer partners, please approach those around you. Just pray with them, encourage them in the decision that they've made. And I'm just going to bless you and then we, you can be on your way. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. 
In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God be with you. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.